Welcome to Grounding Grief, a podcast dedicated to talking about grief. I'm Ann Beach, your host. September is Suicide Prevention Month. In today's episode, Vicki talks about the grief she experienced when a loved one, her ex-husband, died by suicide. Before going into her story, there are a few things I'd like to say. If you or someone you know are having suicidal thoughts, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 988. That's 988. Or text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741741. If you are grieving the loss of a loved one by suicide, consider participating in the overnight a fundraising event for National Suicide Prevention. For more information, go to theovernight.org. If you like this episode, please leave a review or email me at ann, A-N-N, at groundinggrief.com to let me know your thoughts or tell me your grief story. I have known Vicki for more than 30 years. We became friends after meeting in the church in which we raised our families. Vicki and I participated in a woman's group there, albeit briefly in my case, and our husbands sold Christmas trees together, often with the help and support of our three daughters and their son. And of course, Peter and Charlie spent many a weekend playing golf together. Vicki and Charlie eventually divorced, but they never made us feel like we had to choose between them. They, along with many members of our community, were present in the days after our daughter Victoria was murdered. In fact, the last time I saw Charlie was in my home a few days before her funeral, as he brokenheartedly, and oh so tenderly, expressed his condolences. Shockingly, just five days after Victoria's funeral, we would learn Charlie had died, and by the time we attended his funeral, just 11 days after Victoria's, it was confirmed he had died by suicide. Victoria and Charlie are buried in the same section in a cemetery in our town that abuts the golf course where my husband and Charlie so often played. Five years ago, my niece Isabel called me, leaving a message urging me to return her call as soon as possible. I knew immediately my sister, just 22 months younger than I, had, on her third attempt, been successful. She had died by suicide. Thank you, Vicki, for so kindly agreeing to join me today to talk about this very difficult topic. Um, It is a difficult topic, but Honestly, Anne, I'm happy to talk about it because I feel like the more awareness we bring, it's going to help someone. I think it's a difficult conversation and uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable for me to talk about it for a while. I've moved past that. And also thinking that it's going to help someone down the road grants me a little peace. Vicki, let's start with you talking a little bit about the things that helped you move past both the discomfort of speaking about suicide and grief. I will say, you know, the number one thing for me personally was my faith. Also having such a support system around me, friends and family, having a steady flow of people at my home. Um, was really helpful. Can you go back there a little bit and think about the things those people did that were most helpful to you during that time of immediate grief? Um, 
I think always having someone there to kind of reassure you about why you were feeling the way you were feeling. And it's, it's part of a process being able to express yourself and how you were feeling, I think was helpful. You know, like I said, it's a difficult topic when it comes to suicide, people kind of shy away from it. At least having my family and friends close by during that time really helped my process of getting through it. In the days prior to Charlie's death, had you been aware that things were troubling him or was this a sudden shocking event? I mean, it was definitely a shocking event for sure. I think part of the grieving process when it's a suicide, you have so many unanswered questions. There was no note. There was nothing for me to reflect back on. I was, even though Charlie and I were divorced, we had a very good relationship. We have a son, you have to communicate just because of a couple divorces doesn't mean all your your emotions for that person go away. You've been together for 25 plus years. Those things just don't go away. I was proud that we had that relationship. I think for me personally, I was upset that I didn't recognize it because I've experienced depression. I had postpartum depression after my son. I, I think that's a hard part for me because I felt like I should recognize that, right? Like, You've been through it, but people hide it and they hide it well. And I think for men, it's different. You know, there's a little bit of a pride that goes with it for them. And I think they're less likely to reach out for help. I was mad for a long time because I felt like he knew me. (laughs) He knew what I experienced. You should have come to me. I knew he was having some struggles during that time, but not not necessarily related to this specifically. I did not see this coming. I did not see it coming. And so when um, you first learned of of Charlie's death, uh, can you talk about, you had said you were angry. You were angry with him. And were you angry with yourself also for not seeing the signs? Yeah, of course, because I think with a suicide, your grieving process is a little more complicated. You know, you have your regular normal steps of grieving. Part of it, there's guilt. There's guilt there because I was mad because I didn't see it coming. You know, so I was a little angry with myself not being able to see that as well as Charlie for not coming to me. Was anger the strongest emotion you felt, or was it just a piece of a myriad of emotions, particularly very close to the time when he passed? No, the anger came after the sadness and the shock. I think you're a little numb when it's like, like such a sudden death like this and it's a suicide. One, because you you didn't expect it, but yeah, I mean, I was incredibly sad that, you know, not only for myself, I drew my strength from my son because I took the focus almost off of Charlie and onto my son. I needed him to be okay. That was very early on. I needed to focus on my son, what was best for him, what I needed to do to make sure he was okay. So, you know, just like any death, you're kind of in the process of got to book a funeral. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. So you're busy. 
you're very busy. So you're very distracted to a certain degree. The initial focus after the shock of it all was, was my son's well-being. You need your children to be okay. And that was that was truly my focus as well as my strength to get through it. You've touched on the fact that when some a shocking sudden death occurs and there's a family involved, there is more than one grieving person. And as the mother in this situation, your focus turned to your son. But do you have any insight into the space both you and your son afforded one another in the early days of grief and how you were able to grieve both individually and together? Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like we have a good, we have a closeness, Christian and I, and that strengthened our closeness. I was not only there for him, I felt like he was there for me. And we used to talk about it. Having that relationship with him helped both of us. It's a devastating situation. There's no way else to describe that. It's devastating. And I can only imagine my son was 22 at the time. And I kind of reflect back on how I was when I was 22. And I clearly would not have handled it as well as he did. He had an intelligence about it. And very early on after it happened, he, as he described it to me, I had two roads one was a road where I I could have this affect me in such a bad way in my life. And then there's the other road that I need to rise above it. He instantly knew which road his father wanted him to take. And that was really quite early on after Charlie's passing that he came to that conclusion. I personally probably would not have handled it as well as he did at, at such a young age for a devastating loss like that. So it sounds like Charlie was your son's guide and your son, to a degree, was your guide. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, he was very logical. I think I'm a, I'm more of an emotional person. So my head just kept telling me, you have to be okay with this because of your son. You have to be okay, no matter what. There were definitely times where I broke down, but I, I feel like I did that not so much in front of him. It's an emotional thing. Have there been places that you have found difficult to visit or places that have been comforting? I I definitely will say driving through Sharon sometimes strikes uh, an emotional sadness because of course you think back to your time before Charlie's passing. Um, But ironically, also going to the cemetery grants me peace which is also in Sharon. I don't go to the cemetery all the time or anything like that. Periodically when I do go, it does give me give me peace because Charlie was a big golfer at his headstone. I had to put these large baskets because people would constantly leave golf balls. There's a Jewish t- tradition of leaving a stone on a person's headstone to say someone came by. And so there are the stones there as well, but there are many, many golf balls. You know, it just gave me peace to see that because I knew other people were missing him. Again, it it ties me back to my faith on his headstone. It says until we meet again. And that's, I hold that close to my heart. Are there particular days that are worse than others for you? 
Well, yeah, of course, I think we think more of our uh, loved ones during their birthdays or certain days of the year. You know, clearly spring is a difficult time because he passed Memorial Day weekend and then his birthday is the beginning of June. And then we have Father's Day. May and June tend to be a difficult time. And I don't mean difficult. It's more, you know, you think of them more, miss them a little bit more during those days both May and September for me are times when um, I reflect more deeply, remember more deeply. And like you, I am always comforted when I visit Victoria's gravesite and see that someone other than me has been there. You know, it, it just elicits a big smile. Mm-hmm. Our losses were, they both were over nine years ago now, but to this day, I crave people talking to me about Victoria. Um, I'm grateful when somebody mentions her name or is comfortable with me acknowledging she once was. Do you have similar reactions about when people bring up Charlie? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like talking about Charlie. He more times than not brings a smile to my face. He was a funny guy, you know, kind of the life of the party kind of person. Um, so a large personality. So I, I like when people bring him up because I, I don't necessarily think sad thoughts. I think, oh yeah, I remember when, you know, usually it's a specific thing that they might bring up that will put a smile on my face for sure. I know there's nothing more heartwarming when somebody tells me something that makes me smile about the essence of who Victoria was. Mm-hmm. In your worst moments, what was or is something that you turn to to lessen the weight of your grief? And you may have already answered it. It may be your faith. It may be your needing to be well and to accept it for your son. But is there anything else? I mean, I think, yes, you're right. Those are the two things that I feel ground me. Clearly my son is the number one thing that will always make me stop going down that road of being in a a bad place just because of the overwhelming grief. I would only let my mind go so far and then feel like if I was getting totally overwhelmed, I kind of, I just stopped to think about my son and what, what he has had to go through. And that really put things in perspective for me to make me feel better. Yeah, it, it, it's it's always about my son, I guess. More than anything, it's always about my son. What were the best times for you to include people in your grieving process? And what were the times that you gave yourself permission to be alone? And And do they still exist? I think when I'm sharing with people, And you'll be surprised when you do share your story and everybody has their story. You will be surprised how many people know someone, whether it's family, friends who have experienced suicide. Those are the times I tend to open up a little bit. You just come across it more times than than you want to admit because you just forget how much this affects people. Like, you know, it's to me, it's an epidemic. I open up more when I know someone who's been in that same situation and you have a deeper understanding for one another because of it. The times I'm 
I was by myself, which was driving in the car and taking a shower. There was no escaping your thoughts. And those were the times that I allowed myself to truly feel it and let it out because it was a personal time. It was, you know, time by myself. And you really need to kind of go through that process to heal. Interestingly, those were the two times um, for me as well. And I still driving. Yeah. Let myself um, feel the sorrow. What surprised you most about yourself as you went through this experience? I guess my image of myself was always, I always felt like I was the weak one, so to speak, because I was more emotional. And I think when you go through a depression, it kind of rattles you and it, it did rattle me for a while and make me feel like I was the weak one. And so I think going through this process, you don't realize how much you can get past until you're put into that circumstance. And wherever you pull your strength from to get through it, I think will surprise you. And I think that kind of surprised me personally. You don't realize how strong you are until you go through something that's, you know, really just shakes your world. I'm grateful for that. I'm absolutely grateful for that. The ability to feel is exactly what makes us human. And I think um, part of our cultural shunning of talking about grief and taboo topics like suicide um, doesn't serve us well. And that's that's why I began this podcast to say, let's let's shine some light on it. Let's let people who have been deeply wounded by these things, but yet walk among us. Let's hear what they have to say. On the other hand, there are people who rightly so, understandably, who get stuck in the pain of the loss and the hurt and the shame and the guilt. Do you have any thoughts about when you felt those things, how you were able to get past that? Can you recall any of those moments where something just made you say, yes, I'm I'm feeling this, but I must get beyond this? Yeah, I think when I was first notified of Charlie's passing, two police officers came to my house. And the first thing, of course, that came to my mind, because my son wasn't home, I was like, oh, dear, you know, I thought something happened to Christian. And then they came in and told me what happened. And they did say, we believe it was a suicide. And I just remember thinking in my head, I'm like, oh, dear God, please, 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 please don't let this be a suicide. Because in my head, that was so much harder to accept. If it was a health issue or something like that. It was, and I don't know if I I considered it an embarrassment necessarily as just so much harder to accept for me, for our family, for my son. There's just so much, so many other emotions that come with that. I remember thinking, just please let it be health, health related or something else, not suicide. But, you know, the reality is it's a death. You have to deal with it. You have to go through the grieving process. And again, I turned my focus to my son. If he's well, I'm well. If he's not well, I'm not going to be well. Like I needed him to be okay. That's how I I dealt with it personally. 
Yeah, I remember well the phone call I got in the middle of the night letting me know that Victoria had been murdered. I remembered thinking very briefly, you know, people are going to be shocked because this doesn't happen to family like ours. But in my gut, I I, I thought, but this is the way the world is. It, things like this do happen. And that capacity I had to accept it, the simple fact to accept, as you said, it's a death, was a gift. It allowed me to move forward and think about her sisters and her father and the people who loved us and to think about her and her attributes. I have steadfastly people, her friends who came to me feeling guilty, they weren't with her, things like that. I look them in the eye and I say, no one is responsible for her death other than the man who chose to strangle the life out of her. She's not responsible for her death. Um, as you know, I also, my sister died by suicide. And it does add in that dimension of their choosing to end their life, which can be very difficult to accept, particularly when you love them. Early on, you said the reason you are willing to talk about suicide is how important the topic is to help someone else, to help someone to make the choice to live, to help the family members, the, the bereaved of, of someone who has chosen to take their life, knowing that um, serving heals. And it doesn't mean you have to publicly serve. If, if so moved, you can do things. But honestly, just serving oneself and finding grounding and acceptance and forgiveness lead to being able to get up and breathe and take your next step. Right. Right. I do think um, it's helpful doing something in the memory of someone else. And my niece, Kathy was the one who kind of started this uh, participation in the walk for um, suicide. You know, we started in 2015 and continue to do it. And I do think it grants us a lot of peace doing that because you are doing it, whether it's for Charlie, whether it's for Ellen, I think it helps us on a different level to be able to do that, feeling like you're doing your small part to make it, to make it better, to make it better somehow. Thank you for listening today. Join us next time when Vicki and I take a deeper dive into the transformative power of life's tragedies. If you like this episode, follow us, rate us, or leave a review, or reach out to me at Anne, A-N-N, -N, at groundinggrief.com.